On this week's edition of New York Now, state lawmakers leave Albany for the year next week. We'll look at what's expected to pass and what's not with Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers and our own Daryl Camp. Then, New York could adopt a single-payer healthcare system, but business groups say that's a bad idea. We'll discuss. And later, lawmakers are also considering a measure to cap emissions in the transportation sector. We'll explain. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation law prohibiting it, and we will take them to court challenging it. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. The clock is ticking in Albany. There's now less than a week left in this year's legislative session. And we don't know if lawmakers are planning to pass any big ticket items before they leave for the year. But one issue that's getting a lot of attention at the state capitol is crime, and specifically gun control. And that's not out of the blue. Crime is up across New York compared to past years, with a spike in shootings statewide. Cities like Albany, Rochester, and New York City have all seen shootings skyrocket in recent months in a year that's turning out to be deadlier than before the pandemic. And Democrats say that's only going to get worse as the weather gets warmer. Assemblymember Diana Richardson. We know that the summer months are ahead of us. We know what that brings for black and brown communities. And we know that we do not have any more time on our side to decide when is the right time to do what's right. Now is the time. So Democrats are targeting crime by setting their sights on illegal guns, hoping that helps bring down the number of shootings. The Senate passed a package of gun bills this week, but we don't know if the Assembly plans to take them up. One of those bills would set new requirements for gun owners like mental health screenings and drug tests, while another would allow people to sue gun manufacturers when their products are used in a crime. But Republicans say that Democrats are missing the point. They say the problem isn't just illegal guns, it's a shift in culture. Senate Republican leader Rob Ort. But the idea that you're going to hold gun manufacturers responsible for the acts of people, especially if they're already committing a crime by possessing an illegal weapon, I, I don't see how that changes anything. Criminals, the very people we're here talking about today, that we want to help, we need to solve their problem. They, by definition, don't follow laws. That's why they're criminals. And that's just one issue that lawmakers are considering before session ends on Thursday. Let's break it down with this week's panel. Our own Daryl Camp is here and Kate Lisa is from Johnson Newspapers. Thank you both. So Kate, I wanna to go to you first. We're watching a lot of different things for the end of session. One big issue that keeps coming up is parole reform. What's going on there? Yeah, so um, activists have been rallying hard this week all across the state. We've been seeing rallies going on concurrently in cities at the same time. I think every day this week, people are really pushing for elder parole and fair and timely parole passage. It's been big conversation and um, a lot of lawmakers seem to be getting behind the issue too, uh, jumping on board saying that this needs to be done this session. Elder parole specifically would allow for the uh, a parole hearing for anyone in imprisoned over the age of 55 or older who's served 15 years on their sentence at least and um, that uh, the fair and timely parole act would also just accelerate um it's like yeah, a presumption of parole yeah. right yeah and like the parole board would have to if they wanted to not grant parole basically prove 
why somebody should be kept in prison. But after they serve the minimum, yes. not just automatically, arbitrarily, there is actually a standard there. Right. And I think this week, too, um, the Republicans had a, a big press conference specifically about their own parole reform that they have, which would actually strengthen the requirements needed for someone to be considered or even released. So I think that shows that clearly the conversation is going toward maybe this will get passed this week before the end of the session. And I think part of it is that, the, and I said it before, is that we just don't really know what's going on for the next seven days. Session ends next Thursday, which is June 10th. So we haven't really heard what lawmakers are doing, any big ticket items. Uh, Daryl, what are you watching for the end of session? Well, two things. First of all, something really important. You're the expert on this particular issue, and that's appointments to the Court of Appeals. They should probably be dealing with that right now, but the pushback against Madeline Singus as a prosecutor is significant. I don't know whether or not that will actually stifle her, but it's major. And the other thing is gun reforms in response to street violence, which is an interesting thing. If you watched last week's show, Pat Fahey was on, and she talked about that for a while. And that's the major bill, the one that would allow manufacturers to be sued. It's strange, though. It's a little odd because of the fact that, in theory, this is like suing Anheuser-Busch or some rough equivalent for DWI crashes mm -hmm. if you want to sue gun manufacturers for crimes that the manufacturers themselves are not involved in. And I think to adjust street violence to a point where people feel safe you're going to need a cultural shift similar to what we saw with DWIs where you have mothers against drunk driving and similar things. You have every holiday where drinking's involved. The governor comes out and says, hey, don't do this. And lower levels of government do the same thing. We haven't really seen the same thing as far as a cultural shift in the urban centers and with urban leaders. So that's probably something that should be addressed that isn't necessarily legislative. So I want to circle back to the Court of Appeals, but I want to stick on the gun control bills for uh, just a little bit. So we have the bill that you mentioned uh, with the Pat Fahey interview that we had on last week's show. Feel free to go on our website and check that out. Um, it's, it's an interesting bill. The, the way that it's framed, and I'll just put on my lawyer cap for uh, just a few seconds, is that you'd be able to sue if, there were, if the guns caused a public nuisance. And that's that. I, I can imagine that's going to be tough for people in court to be able to say, this shooting happened, so here's a public nuisance. Well, um, going back to the alcohol analogy, we know that prohibition doesn't work, so we've come up with ways to shift things culturally. Prohibition, it's not about getting rid of all guns, as they've said, but it's about sort of clamping down and minimizing the travel uh, between states or between owners or between um, owners and illegal um, thieves. So. What you're going to see is, although the option is available, I think, it won't necessarily be used, meaning it won't have a substantial effect on gun crime. That's what I'm thinking, too. I don't know. Well, another part of it's education, too, is mm -hmm. if people don't know that they can file these lawsuits, which is a lot to do with litigation, then maybe they won't end up filing them. So that's a big issue that we're watching. A package of gun control bills passed the Senate. As we said, we don't know what's going to happen in the Assembly. But something that did happen this week in the Senate is they passed what's called the Adult Survivors Act. Kate, I want to go to you. What is the Adult Survivors Act? And do we see it going anywhere in the Assembly? So the Adult Survivors Act was modeled after the Child Victims Act that was passed in 2019. And um, it's so it opens a look back window, allowing any um, 
victim of sexual abuse who is over the age of 18 to file um, a case for and, and seek justice against their abuser. Um, the Child Victims Act was for incidents that happened when someone was 18 years old or younger. So this is for incidents, um, I guess it's, it's, there's cases in the fashion industry, models talk about how, you know, this, this kind of thing, like processing the trauma. They need this look back window now if it's outside the, the state's statute limitations on these kinds of, of crimes. So um, that passed the Senate. It's stalled in the assembly. I believe it's in the Assembly Judiciary Committee, has been for a while. Um, so I've been talking to leading activist on the Child Victims Act, Gary Greenberg. He's a survivor, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and he has talked about how there is significant flaws with the Child Victims Act in how um, victims have not have been struggling to get legal representation for their cases because unless they were um, unless they're trying to file suit against someone who has money or an institution that has money. Um, attorneys really aren't interested in, in pursuing their cases. So there's, he's saying the Adult Survivors Act is modeled exactly like the Child Victims Act, and it's just going to create the same problem for people over the age who had this happen to them 18 years when they were 18 years or older. That's really interesting because that issue with the Child Victims Act has been going on since they passed it. Advocates have said this doesn't encompass everybody who's experienced child uh, sex abuse. Um, one advocate that I talk to frequently, Connie Altamirano, her abuser uh, lives in a different country and doesn't have the money. So she had had trouble finding representation as well. It's an ongoing problem. Um, there are so many other issues that we could talk about for the end of session, but we do have to leave it there. Our own Daryl Camp, thank you. And Kate Lisa from Johnson Newspapers, thank you both so much. So another big issue we have our eye on in the final days of session is health care. For the first time, a majority of Democrats in both the Senate and the Assembly have signed on to support what's called the New York Health Act. That bill would overhaul the state's current health insurance structure and replace it with a single-payer system. That means everyone in New York would be put on the state's health care plan rather than private insurance. And supporters say there are a lot of good things about that, like how New Yorkers wouldn't pay anything out of pocket for health care ever again. But business groups say the legislation, as it's written, could be bad for the state's economy. I spoke about that with Lev Ginsberg from the State Business Council and Ed Farrell from the Retired Public Employees Association. Lev from the Business Council, Ed from the Retired Public Employees Association, thank you both for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we're talking about the New York Health Act, single-payer health care in New York. It's a big idea the Democrats in the legislature are trying to push through before the end of this year's legislative session. It would basically create a whole new health care system for New York uh, called single-payer. And I'm not going to get into the details of that. I just want to talk about this bill. Lev, I want to start with you. Business groups have said that this bill may cause some economic concerns for the state and may actually be bad for New York's bottom line. Can you explain where you're coming from here? Yeah, I, I sure. It's uh, I think an understatement to say it might be bad for New York State. It might be bad for the business climate. It might be bad for the economy. Um, there's been a lot of studies. The price range of this package uh, runs anywhere from over a hundred billion dollars a year to two hundred and fifty billion dollars annually. Uh, there's a projected job loss in the state of New York of one hundred and sixty-one thousand jobs immediately at the inception uh, or the the enactment. Uh, of the bill uh, to become law. It would completely change uh, a number of things, including tax structure. It would put a 10% payroll tax 
across the board, 80% of that paid by employers, 20% uh, of that paid by employees. So you would see your average employee have an increase in their taxes of, uh, just payroll taxes, uh, on the low end of 18%, and that would be for low earners. It would be, I think it would not be hyperbolic to say that it would be an economic disaster in the state of New York. So when we talk about single payer, something that a lot of people bring up is, well, it's going to cost a lot of money, obviously, but will that outweigh what we are already paying in health premiums? Has there been any analysis on that in terms of the New York Health Act? Would, would, it, be, would it cost more than people are already paying out of pocket for insurance right now? Sure. I, you know, it, it really obviously is going to depend on who you ask, and it's going to depend individually. But <clears throat> and you can always find folks who are going to have a different experience. But by and large, you're shifting from premium to taxation with no cap on the taxation. There's very little question that it's going to cost many much, much more. Um, and, and just to give an example, a couple examples. Um, one would be if you happen to be a lower earner, you're currently not paying into, ta into, the, into the tax system as much. Um, and you, you may be taking uh, part in a Medicaid program or you may be taking part in one of the other programs that are both state and federally funded where you're getting a very low cost coverage. Mm. That's going to go away. You're going to start paying this 18% tax increase that I mentioned a moment ago. For, so for that person, it certainly would be a very big deal. For the employer, on the other hand, um, you're paying whatever you're paying in premium. You're going to be supplanting that with an 80% of this 10% overall tax. When, if you remember back maybe 10 years ago when we were discussing the ACA, Obamacare, mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the things we kept hearing, the mantra out of Washington was, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. Right. This plan makes all plans in New York illegal except this. So the absolute mantra here is if you like your plan, too bad. It's gone. So you would be forced to go on to this. You can't keep your plan. It would be illegal to sell any other insurance product covering these things in the state of New York. So that's a good segue to Ed. The Retired Public Employees Association has a position that we don't really know what's going to happen to the benefits of retired public employees under this legislation. Or maybe we do. Can you explain your position? Certainly. Um, retired public employees have spent their whole career waiting for this moment. Building toward that to benefit. enjoy the benefits that they've earned. Uh, there's a provision in this bill that talks about lessening benefits, which is quite alarming. Uh, specifically, it says if, if in fact this new plan, this New York Health Act, diminishes your benefits, that you would go back to where you used to be to get your benefits from that program. So and as Lev just said, that program no longer exists. So would it be that you don't have as much coverage? Like, how, uh, do we know how the plans would change? Is it, is it that certain things wouldn't be covered anymore? Um, would any costs go up for retired public employees? Well, we don't know. That's the uncertainty. They're asking us to believe that if we go into this new plan, that everything will be better. Specifically also for... Uh, you could be a retired public employee who no longer lives in the state of New York, uh, which means that you are getting benefits either, one, you're on Medicare, which a lot of our members are, or two, you have a supplemental plan maybe from your local jurisdiction, uh, your municipality or your county. Uh, but that would have been based in New York, and those plans would no longer exist. It's tough. I, I, I couldn't imagine being a retired public employee and 
being uncertain about that, hopefully we can get some clarification from the bill sponsors as to actually how this is all going to work for them. But I do want to circle back to the jobs question with you, Lev. Um, you'd mentioned that we would lose, the state would lose 160,000 jobs if this went into law. Can you describe what jobs we're talking about here? Are we just talking about um, jobs in the health insurance industry? I guess, who are we looking at in terms of who would no longer be employed? Well, of course, you'd be talking about jobs in the health insurance industry because they would cease to exist. But you'd also be talking about um, jobs in, in, in the producer community or the broker community, people that, that make those connections. Um, and, and then, you know, it sort of moves out from there. There's all kinds of ancillary businesses that rely on those businesses, quite frankly, to, to, uh, to exist. So it, it goes down to even as much as the luncheonette, you know, down the road from, 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 the, uh, from the facility where, where a thousand people might be losing their job. Um, and it's not concentrated actually in one area of the state. Uh, there's really large job losses on Long Island, uh, certainly in New York City, all the way up to Hudson Valley, and then, and then throughout, throughout you know, the I-90 corridor. So the pain would be felt really sort of across the board. Um, so I, I think 161,000 is the number that, that we're talking about when the bill is enacted, when it goes into effect, rather than sort of what the long-term impact of this bill could be, which could be much worse. So we're almost out of time. I, I have one closing question for both of you, because I think that we, everybody can agree that healthcare in New York and across the country is too expensive, and health insurance is unaffordable for a lot of people. From both of your perspectives, and I'll start with you first, Ed, how, if not the New York Health Act, can we lower the cost of healthcare and health insurance in New York? Well, I'm not an expert on lowering the cost, but I, I can tell you this, that most people like the insurance they have. Now, let me just add one thing that's really scary. If the state were to take over all the health care, and we saw what happened, we, seniors, retirees, who were in the first wave of people trying to get vaccinated, it was a disaster, and it was horrible, and the process was unworkable. Very disorganized. Especially for seniors. Yes. Who are not computer literate, who needed help, and uh, going into this brave new world, I don't think is the way to go. Lev, go ahead. So I think that Ed is right. I mean, we have a problem. The problem is that we have 95% coverage in the state of New York. Um, we have to close this small gap, and there are a lot of ways we can do it. But as far as controlling costs of health care, there are a slew of things that could be done. Um, I think that we should start maybe at taking a look at uh, some malpractice reform, looking at things that are driving up the cost, unnecessary te uh, testing, what we would call defensive medicine. And when it comes to plan design, you know, plans are really, uh, they're, they're, they have to choose from a very, very narrow sort of field of, of plans. There was a time where you could have a more robust choice of plans one that was more narrowly tailored to sort of, you know, your needs. All of those things can be done one at a time or together in, in more of a unibus package uh, without, without doing something so unbelievably extreme uh, and creating a health plan that's honestly more draconian than any in the world with the exception of perhaps Cuba and Belarus. It's a really interesting conversation and I think it's one that we're going to continue having for I don't know, in perpetuity until everybody's happy with what they're paying for health insurance and what they're getting for health insurance. But we got to leave it there. Lev Ginsberg from the Business Council, Ed Farrell from the Retired Public Employees Association. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. As of now, it's anyone's guess whether Democrats will move forward with the New York Health Act by Thursday, but we'll keep you in the loop. 
Moving on now, another top area we're watching for the end of the session is legislation on the environment. Sources tell New York Now that the Climate and Community Investment Act likely won't pass this year. That would have charged a fee on fossil fuel companies for carbon emissions. But a similar piece of legislation still has legs. That bill would create what's called a low carbon fuel standard, which is targeted at vehicle emissions. It's also referred to as a clean fuel standard by supporters. For more on that, I turn this week to Julie Tai from the New York League of Conservation Voters. Julie, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me on today. Of course. So let's start from the very basic. What is a clean fuel standard and what should people know about it? A clean fuel standard is a technology neutral approach to reducing emissions from the transportation sector. It requires uh, any fuels that exceed a standard, which would be a reduction in pollution associated with uh, with transportation fuels, um, any, any fuels that exceed the standard, so fossil fuels, the dirty fuels, gasoline and diesel, would have to buy credits from any fuels that are below the standard. Um, so that includes electricity, it includes renewable liquid fuels like renewable diesel, uh, and so that will help us move off of fossil fuels and into a cleaner transportation future, which is really critical because transportation pollution is 36% uh, of our climate pollution that's out there. So we really need to tackle fossil fuels in order to clean up our transportation sector. So they buy the credits, where does that money go? Is it used for a specific purpose, like other environmental purposes? It's actually, it stays within the transportation sector. Um, so it, it goes from the dirty fuel providers to the clean fuel providers to help to develop and uh, deploy the use of clean fuels, including electric vehicles. Um, we think this is really critical. It could help uh, truck fleets, it could help transit fleets transition to cleaner fuels, as well as uh, entities like, we know Lyft, for example, has made a commitment to transition their fleets to all electric by 2030, uh, assuming that there are some supports or, or incentives to help them get there. So a clean fuel standard would go to those providers from the fossil fuel industry. So really making the fossil fuel industry pay for this transition to a clean transportation future, which makes sense to us because the fossil fuel industry is really the ones who are responsible for the climate crisis we find ourselves in. So the State Transportation Advisory Panel has recommended that New York adopt a clean fuel standard. There is a bill in the legislature that would do just that. Can you tell me a little bit more about the bill? What's in it? What are the goals and parameters that we're looking at? So. Uh, Senator Parker and Assemblywoman Carrie Werner carry legislation that does exactly what you said. The Transportation Advisory Panel made a recommendation to include a clean fuel standard going forward. The, the bill would require a reduction of 20% of pollution from the transportation sector by uh, 2032, just from the fuels. Uh, and that was a, is a very nice complement to legislation that the, the legislature passed earlier this year, uh, requiring zero emission sales uh, by 2045 of all vehicles, including medium and heavy duty vehicles, which means we have a long period of time where we're expecting that uh, vehicles are still going to be using some kind of combustion engine. This would enable us to start reducing the amount of pollution from those fuels during that time while we're moving, you know, accelerating that move, frankly, to electricity. Um, the bill would uh, specifically require a 20% reduction by 2032. It would apply to all fuel providers. Um, again, we look at this on a life cycle basis. It requires the State Department of Environmental Conservation to set up that standard uh, and to make sure that we're taking action to reduce those emissions. It also allows for um, fuels that we otherwise 
surprised the state of New York couldn't regulate like aviation fuel to be included. They could voluntarily participate in a market, which would help us to really work on reducing air pollution from, from air, air traffic that we don't have the ability to otherwise tackle. So a big part of this is that it places the burden on fossil fuel companies to pay for it, and that obviously comes with some cost. Could we see that trickle down to consumers? In other words, could we be paying more at the pump if this passes? You know, the price of gasoline at the pump and the price of diesel fuel at the pump is really part of a much bigger geopolitical um, sensitivity. We see that, right? Gas prices just went up because people are traveling on Memorial Day weekend. Gas prices went up when there was a problem with a pipeline. Gas prices go up when there's uh, there's politics happening in the mid the Middle East. Um, we have not seen in California and Oregon where they have had a clean fuel standard for a number of years. We haven't really seen any empirical studies that show a direct correlation between the price of a low carbon fuel standard and um, and the price at the pump. But what we have seen is a significant reduction in fossil fuel usage. We've seen in California in 2019, uh, 2.5 billion less gallons of fossil fuel was used as a result of the clean fuel standard. 20% of the investments of the credits went to electricity uh, or for EV-related work, and they are not 20% of the fuel market right now because the lower uh, the carbon intensity of your fuel, the more credits you're going to generate from that. And we know that based on the prices in, in California and the amount of fossil fuels that we use in New York, which is uh, about 5.6 billion gallons of gasoline and 1.3 billion gallons of diesel fuel, that in New York, this could generate between a billion and $1.4 billion in investments in clean fuels, including EVs here in every year. Right. That's not a, that's not over a period of time. That's every single year we could be getting about a billion dollars of investments that the fossil fuel industry pays for uh, and goes into this without particularly seeing any price impacts for the consumer. All right. Well, this is one that we're watching. Julie Tai from the New York League of Conservation Voters. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you for having me on. And we should note that a few states already have a low carbon fuel standard, including the entire West Coast. But we do have to leave it there. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.